This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. We'd learned in our sort of amateur publishing days, or, or I'd learned how what forms you had to fill out to try and get a license to just be able to republish half a dozen pieces of Commonwealth legislation. So I just used the, fa- the same form and I put all Commonwealth legislation uh, and it asked you what medium and I said all electronic media uh, and just submitted it without even a covering letter and I got a licence back the next week because obviously they didn't understand the magnitude of what they were giving us. The Free Access to Law Movement is an international movement devoted to providing free and open online access to legal information. This includes case law, legislation, treaties, law reform proposals, and legal scholarship. During a recent trip to Australia, I spoke with Professor Graham Greenleaf, one of the pioneers of the movement, who co-founded Austly, the Australasian Legal Information Institute. Following in the footsteps of the Legal Information Institute at Cornell University, Austly helped reshape legal publishing in Australia and played a pivotal role in bringing other countries' legal materials online. This week's Law Bites podcast features perspectives on free access to law from two countries. It begins with my conversation with Professor Greenleaf, focusing on the founding of Ostley, the growth of free and open law, and where he sees the provision of legal information headed. The episode continues with a conversation with Xavier Beauchamp-Tremblay, the current CEO of Canley, the Canadian Legal Information Institute. I'm a former Canley director, and I was delighted to learn more about Canley's current priorities and gradual transformation into a one-stop shop for legal information. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Michael. I'm delighted to participate. Okay, it's great to have you. Let's start, as I said, with Austley, uh, the Australian, uh, Australasian Legal Information Institute. Uh, can you provide us, for those that aren't familiar with it, how it came to be and, and what was the problem that you were trying to solve back in the day when it first began? Well, in those pre-World uh, Wide Web days before 1995, Australia was no different from anywhere else in the world in that there was no free access to law because there was no effective distribution mechanism until the World Wide Web came along. But uh, probably like Canada, we were also afflicted uh, with the problem of Crown copyright. Uh, And we had a double whammy Uh, that our state and federal governments in the previous decade had given uh, exclusive licences for the electronic dissemination of case law and legislation to various commercial players. Uh, So uh, at the midpoint of the 90s when the web made... Uh, free distribution of information plausible, uh, we had a very difficult situation of no access to legislation or case law to distribute. So it was literally the case that the government took the position that it owned, in effect, the copyright over statutes and cases through Crown Copyright, and 
held that ability to hand over the rights for distribution to select publishers who then sought to commercialize that as opposed to ensuring that and, the public would have access. What they, and that's what they did. And some of those uh, publishers were spectacular commercial failures so that by the early 90s, uh, the gloss was starting to wear off the era of privatisation of government assets and it was, it was possible to think about um, driving a wedge uh, between governments and commercial publishers and getting uh, that legal information effectively into the public domain, although not legally into the public domain. Okay, into the public domain in the sense that the public would free have access. access. Free access was, was our aim. Uh, from that point onward, yes. Okay, so you're start you're starting at, at a point where government has the copyright control, private sector publishers have the effective control through licensing agreements. How the do you license, how, how do you how do you fix that? licensing agreements had had largely expired by that stage. The exclusivity had expired, but getting access to the data was the real question, and, and also getting agreements of some sort or licenses of some sort to use it. But you know where, where we were coming from, and, and the we at that stage was uh, now Professor Andrew Mowbray at the University of Technology and myself here at UNSW, uh, Andrew and I had been working together in the field of AI and law in the pre- web days of 1984 to 1995 uh, and Andrew uh, had written a suite of software which we had used to develop small commercial disk-based products but as a result we had our own search engine, we had a hypertext engine and we had experience in what then seemed to be large-scale automated markup of legislation and case law and an ability to translate that into the new web environment, which, quite frankly, neither governments in Australia nor commercial publishers had a clue about how to do. So we had the technological advantage, but we didn't have the data. Okay. How did you get the data? Um, well, by a, a variety of, of means, um, we'd learned in our sort of amateur publishing days, or, or I'd learned how what forms you had to fill out to try and get a licence to just be able to republish half a dozen pieces of Commonwealth legislation. So I just used the, fa the same form and I put all Commonwealth legislation uh, and it asked you what medium, and I said all electronic media. Uh, and just submitted it without even a covering letter. And I got a licence back the next week because obviously they didn't understand the magnitude of what they were giving us. So we had the licence. Uh, the New South Wales government, our state government here, uh, was actually somewhat sympathetic at this stage to opening things up. They gave us um, New South Wales legislation in electronic form and um, I'm not quite sure if you know the expression, it fell off the back of a truck, uh, but an electronic set of Commonwealth legislation fell off the back of a truck into our hands. And so without any right to use it, we put it up 
uh, on the web converted using our software, causing considerable mayhem, I understand, in Canberra, where they were about to commercialise the same legislation. And look, after that, uh, the next thing was um, uh, my uh, colleagues uh, went to the High Court, which had provided to the Federal Attorney-General's Department all the High Court decisions uh, and the, uh, the Attorney-General's Department had digitised that in a sort of somewhat crude but effective form going back to 1949. We got the uh, uh, Marshal, uh, the CEO of the High Court, uh, to uh, send a letter to the head of the Attorney-General's Department requesting on behalf of the High Court that the Department hand over an electronic copy of the Court's decisions, or as I think he might have put it, our decisions, uh, to um, the two universities concerned for the purpose of republication. And faced with that request from the High Court, um, they, the Department did so. We then took a copy of that letter to the head of the federal court, the head of the family court. We got them to write similar letters and the initial flow of data started. But, you know, with the, with the 10 jurisdictions in Australia, it was a, something that felt occasionally like a, a sort of trench warfare for the next five years to get the case law from one jurisdiction, or the, the Supreme Court cases from one jurisdiction, then the legislation from another jurisdiction, and gradually put together the jigsaw puzzle of Australian, fe uh, Australian federal, state and territory law and superior court cases. Much the same uh, as had to be done a few years later in Canada. Uh, and then after that, um, various courts and tribunals, after a little while, started coming to us and saying, oh, we'd like to have our cases uh, made available in the same format as you have all the other courts. Sure. So, so in the, in the 1990s, you're kind of piece by piece, yeah, finding, piece, by piece. finding some yeah. sympathetic yeah. Uh, courts, governments, Up and others? Up until about 2000, yeah. Okay, and by so, then it kind of, do things flip around 2000, where suddenly yeah. now people are coming to you? People start, it started to flip around 2000, and uh, when around that time, the High Court endorsed the neutral citation standard for Australia that we had had a hand in developing. Uh, okay, just, I just want to stop you there. So the, that notion of a neutral citation approach, for those that aren't familiar, commercial publishers had used their own citation system. They were often repeated, and for lawyers wanting to cite cases, and they were, were paper-oriented as well. Right, and uh, so your yeah. and so what you did was find a way to essentially make it neutral, allow yeah, for right. electronic, and that people could rely on your cases in the same way that they might rely on the published ones by commercial publishers. Well. They could, if they wished to, because there would be a consistent and stable citation and they would always know where to find uh, a case with the particular, you know, they call, some people called it the Ostley citation, others, you know, call it properly the neutral citation. Um, and uh, that didn't mean we had overcome uh, 
uh, the problem of the exclusivity uh, given to certain commercial citations, which to some extent persists to this day, uh, for their citations to be preferred by superior courts and tribunals. But gradually that has also worn away in Australia. It's still there and it's still a significant barrier. Mm. Uh, but technically, that those neutral citations meant, uh, once people started citing cases that way, meant that we could automatically provide links to uh, those cases because of the neutral citation. So it increased the technical quality of everything we published because of the dense hypertext linking that came with it. Okay, that's. I mean, it's amazing to see that interplay between both technology and the availability of the materials. Oh, what are legal but, publishers doing at this point in time? They had the field to themselves, and suddenly now we've got a couple of universities coming along, and now you've got courts and governments literally banging down your door to say, yeah. hey, publish well, our stuff. Where are they in all of this? Well, I think for a few years they expected that oh, this would go away. You know, that, sure, they wouldn't be able to sustain it. Uh, and, of course, that's always an issue. Um, and it was only after a few years they realised that we were not going away. And according to um, the independent uh, tallies of, of accesses to material on the web, we were far and away the most dominant provider of legal information online in Australia. And eventually the large commercial publishers, of course, started to catch up. Well, so they should with all their resources. And they've, they built, uh, you know, by around 2000, they built some quite good services. Many smaller players that had existed that were doing nothing more than repackaging raw cases and legislation went out of business or more likely were bought up by the big commercial players, the big three. Uh, uh, but the, the larger players, of course, had their, what is their real asset, uh, which is all of their commentary material, uh, their loose-leaf services, as they were then, uh, and their textbooks and their relationships with authors. And that's their real value-added content, and they continued to have quite successful uh, businesses. And, in fact... Since Ostley had built the market for them by helping herd all of the lawyers onto the World Wide Web, they had a ready market to service once they actually digitised their own valuable content. Okay. So they moved on to really provide value add. Oh, yeah. In a sense, yeah, they did. In a sense, the cases and the statutes, the stuff that the general public really relies upon at a baseline level, you're expected to comply with the law, you yeah. need to have access yeah. to it. That you made available to anybody on a free basis they they built their business models on saying, well, how do you better understand or analyse or assess some of those materials? Yes, and on their unjustifiable monopolies over the so-called authorised reports bestowed on them by certain superior courts and tribunals um, and the fact that they had the only copies of um, uh, case law... Uh, from when Ostley started, 1995, back, uh, say, until the 1970s, uh, where they could have a plausible claim of copyright. 
And that copyright gap still exists and is the major impediment to free access to law in Australia. But not, so not too long into the 2000s, um, we started to close that gap by digitising all of the case law uh, and, well, legislation as well, but all of the case law from 1788, uh, when European settlement started in Australia, up to, uh, depending on the jurisdiction, sometime in the 1960s, basically, or 1970s, and in some cases complete for the whole jurisdiction. Mm. But we, we digitised the whole of Australian case law just with this small copyright gap still remaining in some jurisdictions only. So and then we moved on, of course, to commentary and other secondary materials. Right. So here we are almost 25 years later. Uh, can you give us a sense of what, what does Ostley look like now? Well, what, how large, how many users, what are people who, who would go to the Ostley site going to, going to find? Well, I can't tell you how many users, um, but... Somewhere over 700,000 page accesses or hits per day um, on the Ostley Australian and New Zealand materials uh, and another 300,000 at least for our international materials. So, you know, a million, a million hits a day is the sort of magnitude of usage um, in relation to Australia and, and New Zealand, because it is Australasian, as you correctly said, um, we have um, all of the legislation from the year dot, the annual legislation from the year dot, uh, and the consolidated law from uh, yeah, current consolidations, uh, with case law, all of the case law, almost no matter how small the court or tribunal might be subject to this copyright gap that I've mentioned. Um, treaties complete from the very first treaty that either country entered into since uh, independence at the turn of the last century. Um, we think it's the, the most complete treaties collections in the world. Um, uh, led, uh, law journals um, the majority of Australian law journals are published out of universities and are not commercially owned. And we have been able to publish them in digital form on Ostley and NZLY um, back to their very first issues and pretty much all of them. So well over... Uh, 100,000 searchable journal articles. And we have, I think, all of the law reform reports from all jurisdictions. Uh, that's it. It's, it's big. It, it's, it's, big. A, it's, it's, a <laughs> it's a truly remarkable collection, starting from literally a few letters and filling yeah. out some forms yeah. over a couple of decades. Now, I know that you mentioned Canada, you've mentioned New Zealand, so this is playing out certainly in some other jurisdictions as well around the world as there is this move towards opening up the law. When we think of ensuring that materials are openly and freely available, law is one of the very first things people think about just because there is that requirement that people abide by the law, they ought to have access. Where do you see the, the movement going now? Once you've collected it all, is it a, 
is it a, just a continuation of continuing to c collect or is there a continuing technological evolution or revolution that you see happening within legal, the availability of legal information? There's, there, there continues to be, in the free access to law side of things, a continuing technological evolution and a demand for new types of services. Um, one of those is um, what we call Ostley Communities, and, and in Canada, uh, Canley Connects is a great example of this type of user-generated content, basically. Um, we're doing it in a different way from Canley, which has done a great job on commentary on cases um, by users of the service. We're having um, complex... Um, commentary generated by teams of authors acting for free. So, for example, uh, more than 70 um, people involved in the provision of free access legal advice services in the Northern Territory of Australia have combined to produce online a regularly updated legal services handbook for the Northern Territory covering every aspect of Northern Territory law, an encyclopedia of Northern Territory law. And that's now happening in uh, at least three other jurisdictions around Australia. Uh, we've had our first couple of textbooks um, written on the Ostley Communities platform, uh, and uh, as, as Canley's doing as well. Uh, and so that's one, one aspect. But the other aspect is, of course, artificial intelligence and law. And, um, uh, you know, Andrew and I, in the, the decade, as I mentioned before, Hostley started off in the AI and law field with, in some ways, what were then reasonably primitive resources um, in that you could draw conclusions using the software, but you couldn't really link those conclusions very readily to the primary and secondary legal materials that provided the justifications for your answers. But of course, now we have Ostley standing there next to us, so we can develop AI-based products that will attempt to give people, um, uh, assist uh, the giving of legal advice. And so what we're aiming at is how can you develop a sustainable form of free legal advice provided by legal aid agencies, community legal centres and organisations like that in, a, in such a way that Ostley provides the infrastructure through Ostley communities for how this will work and also provides the AI software uh, that that is straightforward enough to enable these organisations to build or at least maintain their own legal knowledge bases on areas, say, of tenancy law or other, you know, aspects of poverty law and the like. And we're we're just getting started on our first couple of projects to integrate those AI-based facilities into the Ostley infrastructure. So I think we'll, I think we'll see you know, quite a few legal information institutes around the world move in the direction of AI over the coming years. Thank you, Graham. Thanks very much, Michael.
Professor Greenleaf provided several Canadian references. For more on Canley and free and open access to law in Canada, I spoke with Xavier Beauchamp-Tremblay, Canley's CEO. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks. It's, it's great to have you, have you join me. I sp- was speaking with Graham Greenleaf, as you know, one of the founders of Ostley, mm-hmm. several weeks back when I, on a visit to Australia. And he provided a, a truly fascinating history of Ostley, talking about how he literally went court by court, legislature by legislature, to ask for copies of decisions or other materials. Oftentimes, he acknowledged without them fully realizing what was about to take place. It really raises the question of the Canadian story and how it moved into open law. So I'd love to learn more about Canley, but as a start, can you tell me a bit about how you understand Canada's entered into the open law world? Um, okay, so I, I don't have the advantage that Graham have, uh, has of having the entire story because he lived through it. I, I've been at Canley for a little bit more than three years now, and I'm only sort of the custodian of, of the efforts that have been made by the, the people who uh, preceded me and in many ways are still involved in the organization. So um, the, the equivalent of Graham here would be Danielle Poulain in many ways, who uh, started um, publishing legal information online on the Lexum website in 1993. And that, that's only about a year after Cornell started the, the Lee. And it, what's always impressive to me is to think that this, this was two years before Windows 95, and Windows 95 didn't even ship with a browser. So it's a, it's in a later update that when they, they allowed people to download the Internet Explorer. So um, it, it was still prior the, the most used OS uh, operating system having a browser to use the internet on it. So that's, that's, that was really early. And it was the first, so the Lexum website um, was the first website in Canada with any kind of legal information on it. It was, since it was bilingual, uh, and they started publishing the, the Supreme Court decision, so they had bilingual material. It was also the first website in French to have any kind of legal information on it. And um, my understanding as a story is that they continued doing that very successfully, but ultimately wanted to expand on their on their work. And uh, Lexum, the UM at the end of Lexum stands for University of Montreal. They were a legal informatics uh, lab there. And I, I don't know the entire story for it. It's basically hearsay, but uh, it, it, there wasn't necessarily a big appetite to fund more uh, of an expansion to the Lexum mission at the time at the University of Montreal, or I don't know the exact circumstances really. But uh, what what's good about this sort of Cinderella story is that Lexum found the perfect partner in the Federation of Law Societies of Canada in the early 2000s. So Lexum had been on, in operation for seven to eight years, and around 99, the Federation started a committee. So the, the, the Federation is not, uh, practitioners don't necessarily come in contact with the Federation as an organization, but it's basically, uh, it, it regroups all of the law societies in Canada um, around anything that's of national importance, if I can sum it up in, in, in one sentence. And uh, the Federation members, so Canada's law societies were growing concerned that um, access to case law was being, um, well, case law was being less and less uh, accessible, that the, the burgeoning online 
offerings by the main publishers were extremely expensive. And I still have this slide from a, a presentation by Daniel Poulain at, at an event uh, where all the leads are, are grouped together. And uh, Daniel said that I think the price per document at the time was that, that the publishers were offering over the internet was something like 200 bucks per document. So they were trying to price their model uh, by trying to make the equivalent, I guess, of what it would cost to a practicing lawyer to uh, sit up from, from his or her chair and go get the equivalent document in paper form from the library. So I think this was the model they were trying to build. So, and, and Lexum resisted that, saying this can't be the model, and the law societies grew concerned with that. And, uh, and Michael, since you're uh, very knowledgeable in copyright, you also know this was uh, the moment where the lawsuit by CCH, a legal publisher, uh, was started against the Law Society of Upper Canada, as it was known then, uh, over the use of photocopy machines in the Great Library in Toronto. Um, so that ended up to, up to the Supreme Court in 2004, but at the time there were efforts by the publishers to actually limit access to these decisions and even limit how professionals could actually use their library to share these materials. So um, law societies were concerned by that and they studied different scenarios. They still have the, uh, the odd looking, very brown in style PowerPoint presentation from the time where uh, they, the, 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 the committee formed by the Federation explains their recommendation and they studied several different possibilities and they ended up recommended that uh, in some ways Canada emulate the, uh, the, the, the Lee model that was started in, in, um, <clears throat> in Australia and in, at Cornell uh, and to partner with Lexum to build such a thing in Canada. So, uh, and, and this relationship between Lexum and the law societies, as you know, continued uh, and, and it still exists today. Uh, and uh, as you also know, we purchased, Ganley purchased Lexum a year ago. Um, so, so this is a, a, as I said, Cinderella story, a perfect match of Lexum having very ideologic uh, uh, goals that they were trying to, to meet by publishing the law on the internet. And the law societies had similar goals, but they also had the, the, the worry that the profession wouldn't get access to the materials they need to be a competent profession in, in the services they offer to the public. Uh, sure, it's interesting. To, to see how there, there are real similarities across borders where publishers were pricing access to legal materials at incredibly high rates. And what you ultimately really did have was academics in a number of countries committed to ensuring greater levels of access and using this Lee model as the mechanism to do it. For those that aren't familiar with Canly, what will people find there today? How's the Cinderella story? How has Cinderella grown up? <laughs> um, in in some ways, very similarly to Ostley, depending on on where people are listening. So I. Canley started in the early 2000s. Uh, Lexham already had the Supreme Court decisions from when they had started. Uh, and in the early 2000s, Canley proceeded with, with Lexham's help uh, through this, uh, this, this partnership. Uh, in doing pretty much the same job you described Graham doing in, in Australia, that is going pretty much from court to court and trying to convince uh, the courts to uh, share their materials with Canley and publish them um, without a paywall on the internet, which was uh, very new. Uh, and they were very successful at doing this. And I, 
you know, they, I, I, Frédéric Pelletier was involved at Lexham at the time and still is the, the editor-in-chief at Canley, uh, even today. And Frédéric would tell me that they would basically open a, almost a bottle of champagne every time they would get a deal. But when you realize it, it was basically a matter of a couple of years before they they started having decisions from uh, appeal courts and, and uh, Queen's Bench and Superior Court, basically the provincial courts and different jurisdictions. And in a matter of, of two years, they managed to capture pretty much every single court in the country. So if you look at Canley, uh, as of 2003, we pretty much have a, a, a um, uh, one ocean from the other coverage of all the current case law in Canada. And just by staying in business, and now we're in 2019, so staying in business for 18 years, we have an, an organic collection of about soon to be 20 years of content from from the courts in Canada. Uh, add to that uh, several administrative tri tribunals across the country and the fact that we did uh, a lot of different historical scanning projects to uh, over the years to add some more materials that the, the, the practitioners and the public needed to be able to, uh, to basically use Scanly as a standalone resource. So the collection has, has grown significantly and we know from previous studies that it's a very, very small percentage. Absolutely, the Supreme Court decisions are the big outlier. They stay relevant for much longer. But but aside from that, uh, the, the lifespan of a decision in Canada, um, the enormous majority of cases after 15 years are no longer being cited, really. So when you have a collection of an organic collection of 18, 19 years of case law that has been accumulated over the years, plus historical decisions, plus all the Supreme Court, you have a pretty good coverage of what practitioners need to, to be able to practice law in Canada only with what's on Canley right now. Um, and add to that that also over the years, there were several projects starting in, in 2012 and 2013 with the first piece of commentary that was published on Canley and then the launch of Canley Connects in 2013. Uh, Canley is also growing its collection of secondary materials and a big milestone for that has been uh, has been uh, reached um, basically a year ago when we launched an expanded collection of, uh, of commentary on, on the Canley website with decision with um, with uh, lots of law journals, so about larger twenty law journals across uh, across Canada that uh, have agreed to share their materials on Canly, uh, covering different uh, time spans. But uh, we're now at uh, close to be six thousand individual pieces, uh, just in the in the commentary collection as well on the site. So also growing this part of of Canley's operations. That's great. It's great to hear how it's grown. I was around, as you know, on the board back when. This launched, and it's great to see how it's really flourished. Is it primarily lawyers that use Canly today, or does the general public and, and others find themselves actively using the materials there? We see both in very different um, patterns of behaviors, if you will. But we don't ask any kind of information about our users, so it's it's a bit of guesswork to to determine, and, and we don't necessarily want to know that information. Part of the principles under the free access to law movement is that we provide uh, as anonymous as possible access to this collection, so we don't ask uh, where people are coming from. Uh, but we sort of know from the different patterns uh, what's going on on the website. 
And what I've observed, because I had to take a very close look at that for, for a specific matter, uh, but there are about 300 and now closer to 400,000 uh, unique IP addresses that hit the site at any given month in the year. And if you take this very long list of IPs, most of which are completely anonymous, but you take the top 1,000 IPs and you look at what they're doing, and these are public systems. So you can see that the, these IPs, just by using the who is, uh, who is records and stuff like that, different services on the internet, you can match these IPs because they're public with, with uh, what organization is using them. So you can see the IPs from the law firms, from governments, and, and so you can see that very sophisticated users are, are, are making an intense use of the website. And when you take the top 1,000 IPs uh, out of this 400,000, they download about half of the content. So there's both very intense use by, of Canly by the legal profession, uh, and many lawyers uh, would well, just tell me because they, they know me or they meet me in conference and stuff like that, that they use Canly almost exclusively, if not exclusively for their practice. So lawyers uh, use it extensively, and you can see because there's there's only a hundred thousand lawyers in Canada, several of which are in very large organ organization that hit the website through only one single IP address. So um, you can see that if we have four hundred thousand unique IPs over a given month, lots of members of the public are there, but making a much more point in time use of the website uh, when they search for something very specific. So hopefully, in 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 one individual's life, uh, you. The, the amount of times you would have to search for legal information if you're not a practitioner would be relatively infrequent. So, so we notice that. So there's a lot of individual users, but their their use, if you, if you will, gigabytes per user is very low as opposed to the IPs from from firms and governments. Interesting to see those kind of, in a sense, parallel uses. I closed with Graham by asking him what he saw as the future for Ostley, and, and he talked about growing use of artificial intelligence and the emergence of new services. Where do you envision things heading in Canada? Well, I, I could certainly talk about AI because now that we purchased uh, Lexum, we have, uh, depending on the, on, the, on the time of year and the time of the day, we have about three or four programmers doing uh, R&D and AI about full time. Um, I, I think if, if, if I go back to the roots of, of, of what we are, I, I still believe that there's still a lot of materials that it can be aggregated on that platform. Um, I, I, and secondary materials, it, it's not just secondary materials for secondary materials sake. It's not just about building a collection, but making sure that this collection is responsive to just about every single question somebody may ask. And you can use AI to sort of, I, I guess, improve your service and use technologies such as natural language processing to come up with different ways to help people retrieve the answer. But I firmly believe that, uh, and, and there's a technology saying that says more is different. Uh, so I, I think we're going to reach a point where accumulating enough secondary materials uh, will mean something very different about the collection is that uh, the response to somebody's questions, you know, there are only so many legal questions that are asked in Canada in a given year. And 
uh, or, or at least if you look, 90% of the questions have probably been asked already. So if you can find content that's responsive to these questions and make sure you have it in your database, you answer to lots of needs. And of course, anybody who practices law know that there are new exotic questions all the time coming up, but they're all they're really the long tail of these uh, of the use that somebody would do of a website like Canly or, or that the legal profession and the public does. Like lots of these questions are just coming back all over again. So you can use technology to try to answer to these questions, or you can make sure that your content is just responsive in of itself. And the, the profession in general writes a lot of content, but it's scattered across so many different systems, so many different databases, if ever they're even aggregated in, in such systems. So you, I, I know of a lot of uh, organization in, in, in the, the entertainment law bar in, in, uh, in Montreal, because this is where I used to practice and, and the people I used to hang out with. Um, for their CLE event, their people draft papers uh, and, and, and they create all sorts of resources and they're basically shared to people after the conference via email. And, and this is how this knowledge is, is sort of lost. So if we can, we can play the role of aggregating all of these materials, making sure that resources from CLE organizations that are willing to publish their content openly is aggregated on a website we could create a much more useful resource that would be hard to compensate using just technology alone. Because at some point, if somebody writes the answer somewhere, it's easier to get it, uh, assuming you have a good enough search tool. So um, that's really where we're orienting these efforts, to play this role of aggregating the content and slowly starting to change the culture even about first thinking about the fact that if you write something, might as well writing for a public and put it online on Canly, and also to change the sort of default behavior of those authors who think about bringing their materials to the world, uh, but have the reflex of going with publishers and it ends up behind a paywall for lack of an, a credible alternative where you can post these materials. You know, before Canley had, had any kind of, uh, of commentary effort, you're an author and you draft something, well, you could basically publish it on the internet and not everybody has a platform like yours, like your blog is very widely read, so if Michael Geis writes on the internet, like you have an audience. Whereas is, if a professional has an interesting question, spends time doing lots of research, gives a presentation, drafts a, a paper, it can be something that person does once a year, once every year or something. And so they don't have a platform, they don't have the kind of materials where they could operate a blog in of itself. So their only options is either to find a newsletter operated by a publisher where this content could, could go to an audience or just post it on a random website on the internet where just nobody would find it. So Canley has started, is, is, is we're trying to be the central point where people would think about publishing these kind of materials. And hopefully even the content that by default would go to publishers would go to us so that we can build a very, uh, a very useful collection of materials for everybody. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. That's L-A-W-B-Y-T-E-S at P-O-Box.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Lawbites Pod or Michael Geist at M. Geist. 
You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Mm-hmm.